0: and uh and you haven't had your kids go to children's church we could invite you to just uh send them follow the crowd follow the stream and they will be taken care of and watched over and uh and taught i realized that this morning we have visitors who have come to watch their children sing and i hope you enjoyed that um and because you are here visiting us i just wanted to give you a um it's kind of a heads up on what we're doing right now, and that is we take time each time, each service to, uh, to focus on the Word of God and to listen to what the Lord says through the Bible. And this morning, we come to the end of a, of a 10-week series on the last day, um, focusing on the future, and there are a number of reasons why we have done that. One reason in particular that impacts our children is that our children are being taught that life here on this planet was a product of random chance, that is... It's an accident, and therefore, there's, there's no greater power guiding history, and so there is no purpose to it, and ultimately, um, the earth as we know it will succumb to the pressures of the physical universe, and it will go out, which is a, a tragic way of looking at the future. The Bible, however, tells a completely different story, that uh, life on this planet is not a random accident, that it is a divine intention of wisdom. And that there is a hand that is guiding history. And that there is a purpose to history and a conclusion to history. And that is a completely different view. And that's one of the reasons that we have stopped and taken 10 weeks to look at what the Bible teaches about the last day or the future. So that's kind of where we're at. And you're catching the concluding message uh, for those of you who are visiting. There is really only one verse that I'm going to hover around this morning, which is at the very end of the Bible. In fact, it's the second to last verse. It's Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. Chapter 22, verse 20, I'll put it on the screen behind me in a few moments. But let me once again pray that the Spirit of God would speak to you through me and that you would hear his voice. Father, we stop and acknowledge And want to allow a time of rest before you to acknowledge that you are our Creator and Redeemer. That we were created in your image, and though we are fallen and though we are flawed and that image has been distorted, you are a God who is rich in mercy and love. And through history, you have ordained and you have brought about our redemption through the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus. And you have promised to us a home, a future that is certain. It's not an accident. It's not a a wish, but it's real. It's a hope that is certain. So we ask, oh God, as we bring this to a close, this series of messages, I just pray that you would inspire us with your greatness. I pray that you would make those necessary changes in our own hearts to see that the future does indeed matter, that it makes a difference in the present tense, that it helps us to be more loyal and devoted followers of Christ, that it helps us to find courage in the mission that you have given to us and also the strength to love even when it suffers. And so we just ask this morning, will you please just dominate this time in your word and may your voice be heard. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. Well, in some respects, this final message returns back to the beginning, um, to one of the first things that we looked at. Wedding, a marriage. Um, It was 1992, January 8th, in the beautiful setting of Lake Tahoe in a small restaurant called the Swiss Lakewood that I got down on one knee and I proposed to then Deanna Johnson. And surprisingly, she said yes to my relief. Um, But what I didn't know as a typical male is that once you pop the question and it's answered, a massive wheel is set in play that I wasn't prepared for called The Massive Wheel of Wedding Planning. I didn't see that coming. I mean, think of all of the things that go into setting a date to be married. Um, You search for the perfect day, the date. You look for the church in which you're going to be married, this church, my home church or her home church, looking for the pastor. In our case, we wanted to use both pastors, my pastor and her pastor. You sit down with a huge list of people and figure who makes the cut, who doesn't make the cut, of who's invited to the wedding. You have to make decisions like who are my groomsmen going to be and who are bridesmaids going to be, which is a big decision-making process, who's in, who's out. Um, You have to pick the wedding dress, which is no small choice, mind you, or cheap enterprise. Um, You have to choose the ladies' dresses, the guys' tux, the guys' groomsmen's tuxes, um, you have to pick the cake. You have to de- decide what the flowers are going to be. You have to put on a, a rehearsal and a rehearsal dinner. And you have to uh, file the, the, or get the wedding license. And then there's the whole picture thing before and after. And then there's the processional. Who's going to walk who down the aisle and where's everybody going to stand? It is a huge undertaking, all of which centers on about five minutes, really, when it comes right down to it. This massive wheel called wedding planning focuses on the I do on both parties and the preacher saying, I pronounce you husband and wife, and then the kiss. And that really is it. All of that movement and work and productivity all focused on this one single five-minute period in which the preacher says, now you're married. Now, you go along to go along with that, that massive work effort, which... I'll just say, on my part, my wife lived in Washington, which meant she did the vast majority of it, and I lived in California, which was, for me, kind of nice. But she did an amazing job, her and her mother, of making this big wheel turn towards that single moment. But on the other hand, there are all those longings and anticipations on part of the bride and the groom towards that moment. I mean, if you have a, a wedding like most weddings, and, and that is you're not doing a, um, running off the Reno and doing a shotgun wedding, there's all this planning, but there's this anticipation and longing. I mean, we have nine months from January 8th to August 8th. And so you're counting the months, which go by really fast up until about the last week. And then you count the weeks, and then you count the days, and even down to the hours, you're just looking forward to this moment. I remember a few hours before um, the wedding ceremony, I remember one of my buddies saying, dude, three hours, you're going to be married. Are you sure you want to do this? Because you can still, you know, pull the ripcord and get out of this thing without sinning. And uh, he was joking, of course, but it's just almost a surreal kind of experience and um, for us, it was a traditional wedding where the bride doesn't see the groom until that moment when the doors are opened and there's the father of the bride and the bride glowing, and that's the first thing you see. It's almost euphoric. It's, a, it's kind of a moment-to-end moments is, is what it is. And, and that's what it was intended to be, kind of a moment-to-end moments of, of euphoric joy and intimacy and union as two become one. That's, that's marriage. All of it focuses, all the longings, anticipations, all the planning focuses on this single moment of euphoric joy. No matter how much hash we've made out of marriage in this culture, it was intended to be that way. And that's how it's functioned and been throughout the history of marriage. I mean, regardless of the culture you come from or your tradition, there's always this sense of anticipation, joy in the union of husband and wife, which is why it's such a big deal, and family flies in from all over the place to come celebrate this thing called marriage. So it shouldn't be surprising to us that when the Lord wanted to cast in the image of what would take place at the end of history regarding his relationship between him and his people, that he cast it in the form of a wedding, which by his own design he embedded into human experience so that we could understand the anticipation, expectation, and all of the work that goes into that particular moment that in the closing chapters of the Bible, that's how he chose to envision history coming to its close, a wedding between the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and his bride. Because it pulls from our experience and gives us a sense of anticipation, longing, sense of euphoric joy that's still before us. That's the picture that he gave to us. So one could say that from the foundation of the earth... A huge wheel was set in motion, all preparing for one final euphoric climactic day, and that is the wedding between the Son of God and his people, that we find this whole idea of marriage and the wedding, we find it grafted into the story of the Garden of Eden, it's implicit in the promises to Abraham, that it is explicit in God's relationship with Israel, And when Jesus is born on Christmas and lives and dies on the cross and rises from the dead, he does so to purify for himself his bride. So that she would be clean and blameless and holy before him. So one could argue that, or in a manner of speaking, that on the day Jesus died and rose again for his people, purifying his bride, he stuck an engagement ring on the finger of his people. And after he left, he basically said, I will come back for you as my bride. And through the ages, the church has been waiting. God's people have been waiting, longing, singing, praying, and anticipating the final moment to which the entire history and the Bible and redemption are all moving. And that is the wedding supper of the Lamb and his people. So you come here even to the very end of the Bible and you can hear the passion, the longing, and the anticipation of this great moment that is still future for us. So we have here in these final words of the Bible, and the Bible tells a single story, not a bunch of stories. We hear the words, verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, Come. And down in verse 20, we see and hear it again where it says, he who testifies to these things says, and the ones who testifies is the groom, Jesus. Surely I am coming soon. And then the response of God's people, amen, come Lord Jesus. And that is not a stagnant, passionless prayer. That is, come our groom, we're looking forward to the day. And that has been, I think, that sums up the heart of believers through the thousands of years since it all started, since the big planning wheel all got launched, is come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus, this great anticipated day, the union between God and his people. The whole series of messages, the previous nine and finishing with this one, was basically intent on clarifying The truth that everything that we've come to know in the Bible and history itself is moving forward to this final day. And everything should be seen in light of that momentum towards this final day. That we have to look at it, hope for it, pray for it, and understand that that is the great hope of the Christian life. Everything. We have looked at, by way of some, for those who haven't been here... The fact that the last day is comprised of certain things. That final day, on the one hand, is comprised of a judgment of believers and unbelievers. Unbelievers, the outcome being eternal condemnation. And for believers, that is the bride of Christ, that he will give to us a new heaven, new earth, that is a real place, that he will give to us his own presence as his people. That is, when it comes right down to it, the future is comprised of a place inhabited by a people who experience directly face-to-face the presence of the Lord. Place, presence, and people. We also saw that that hope and that future should have a radical impact on how we live in the present tense. That is, it make a difference in how we worship Christ, that we should be encouraged and and compelled to a greater loyalty and a greater fidelity in our worship of Him, that it should compel us to conquer by the word of our testimony, and it should compel us to love people even when it hurts. That's kind of what we've learned. And now we come to the last message, which is basically, what do we do with this now? And this wasn't intended to be just a series of ten messages that get forgotten, but actually to shape the way that we worship, the way that this community of faith operates, so that we can continue to nurture and foster and maintain and build and renew a sense of passionate hope that the bride is supposed to have for her groom. So that that simple phrase, come Lord Jesus, would embody the heart of this church. That's what it should be and what it should do for us. So I just want to lay out for you how I believe this should should inform or this truth should impact the future worship of this particular community of believers, how it should permeate our ministries, this idea of of hope. So, with that said, let me just offer you four ways that this should change in the future the dynamics of the ministry of this church. One is, is that hope must permeate the ministry of the Word that is, in our preaching, in our teaching, and our study of the Bible, whether it's here in a bigger context or in a smaller context of a home or a class. The, this idea of the hope, the grand reunion, the wedding between the bride and the groom must permeate our teaching. It should be woven into the fabric of, of the preaching, teaching, and study of the Bible. Now, most, I think, in this church, at least, are convinced that if preaching doesn't focus on the cross, which takes us back, that it really isn't Christian preaching. As I think most are convinced of that, that where there is no cross explicit in the teaching of the word and how it impacts practical things like marriage forgiveness or recovery from addiction, that in the end it's just teaching without gospel. And I hope that you would have, as Christians, an intolerance of cross-less preaching. Because it all comes from and is founded on the cross and how it impacts our daily lives. I think most of you have that conviction. If you don't, you should. Because it's not Christian if it's not connected to the cross. What I want to say is, just as the cross is fundamental to the teaching, preaching, and study of the Bible, so is the future. That it's not peripheral, it's not an optional thing, that is actually crucial and vital to the teaching, preaching, study, ministry of the Scriptures. And where it's lacking, where there's, where it's either the future and the hope that's set before us is either diminished or neglected, people will inevitably live for their best life now. Because there's nothing left to live for. So part of our teaching, preaching, and study of the Bible has to constantly keep before us the hope, the hope, where we're headed, our future, the climactic event, face-to-face, bride and groom, that has to be woven into everything. That the cross is the Christ-centered way by which we look at the cause of our salvation... But the consummation or the future, the reunion, is a Christ-centered way by which we look at the glory of our salvation. One focuses on the cause, the other the conclusion. So we have to keep it constantly in the forefront of our minds in our teaching ministry at Parkway if we are to develop and foster a hope. Now, let me switch back to my own marriage experience and put this on a human level. Can you imagine for a moment if it's July 1992, a month before I get married, and my wife calls me from Washington, and she says, hey, sweetheart, what are you doing? And I say to her, I'm organizing a fishing trip for August 8th, the day of our wedding. She'd say, ah, are you forgetting about something? She wouldn't say it that nicely. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Like, this is the biggest thing in my life right now is looking forward to this day and you planned a fishing trip? Well, yeah, I guess I forgot. It doesn't work. But when the future is diminished or neglected and that final face-to-face encounter with that groom, that's essentially what's happening. That should be the passion of the church, seeing Christ face-to-face. So it should permeate, The teaching, preaching, truth ministry of our church. Going back to the cross and forward to the consummation. The cause of our salvation and the conclusion of our salvation. So that's one way that this truth about the future should change or should inform the way we do ministry here at Parkway. In particular, the preaching, teaching, and study ministry. And this is corporate as well as individual. I dare you to try and read through the New Testament and not find the future on almost every page. You'll see it everywhere and allow it to to whet your appetite and, and create in you an anticipation and a longing for what's to come. And it's not a chaotic ending of the sun burning out. It's the sun coming and us seeing his face. Second way that it should inform is that it must permeate the ministry of prayer in this church. I mean, this final verse here, this actually it's the second to last verse of the Bible, is in the form of a prayer. It says, come, Lord Jesus. It really is the prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. And there's got to be so much passion and desire and longing packed into that single statement that if that is our great hope it should be both expressed in our prayers and to nurture hope we should be praying for hope that god would wean us off of the delicacies and the pleasures of this life and get us to see that grand reunion with the son of god and us to live for that one someone should write a book called your best life then because there is a day coming when life actually comes to us in fullness you look at the prayers of the of the bible um, some of the psalms are prayers. They're almost always oriented towards the future, to the inheritance of the promised land, or I will dwell in your house of the Lord forever. You look at the prayers of Jesus, and he teaches us to pray, your kingdom come. He's praying for the future. Or you listen to the prayers of Paul, like Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and following, and you hear him pray that they may know what is the hope to which he has called us. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? He's praying that their eyes would be opened and lightened and blown away by what's future. You know, I, I read a book some time ago. It's a, a fascinating little book that expounds on the prayers of the Apostle Paul, uh, written by D.A. Carson, called A Call to Spiritual Reformation, Priorities from the Prayers of Paul. And in that book, he shows how each of the prayers for Paul are implicitly or explicitly future-oriented. In other words, it's part of the fabric of the way he thought and how he felt. He couldn't, couldn't imagine not praying for that day. That's to be the spirit of the church. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Reflect itself in the way that we pray, public prayers, private prayers. Giving thanks for the cross and recognizing that the cross is the foundation of our salvation. But praying in hope, come, Lord Jesus. And setting our eyes and affections on him. the Resurrection and the exaltation of his people. So it should inform and permeate the teaching. It should inform and permeate our praying life. How often, quite honestly, if you were to say, let me ask you, how often do you really pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly? Come Lord Jesus is that is that part of the fabric of your heart as a bride waiting for the groom another way that it should permeate must permeate the ministry of music here and again i have primarily in view our gathering together in worship and i realize the bulk of this rests upon the leaders of the worship but a lot of us are involved in planning or leading or teaching at smaller levels but as you well know music is powerful And it was designed to be powerful by God to not only help, but give adequate expression of the heart in praise to the Lord. So one of the ways that we can foster and nurture this forward gaze of the church looking for her groom and praying, Lord Jesus, come quickly, is to have it permeate the songs in which we sing. Now, some time ago, I, let me back up and just say this. Again, a lot of the songs that we have preserved in Scripture focus on the past and the future. Many of the Psalms do this. Some of the hymns that we find in the New Testament, like Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, which many believe to be a hymn, ends with every knee bowing and confessing that Jesus is Lord. That it takes us to the future. Or the songs that we find grafted into the the revelation, the final book of the Bible, are, are songs that take us back to the cross where the, the lion or the lamb had been slain to purchase for himself a people from every tribe, tongue and nation, and also forward to his reign and his power and his his deliverance of his people and the vanquishing of the beast and the harlot and all of the evil things you find in the book. So they all move us forward. About five years ago, I did a, a, a survey of contemporary worship music that was written for congregations. And it was amazing to me, with some notable exceptions, how much of the music focuses on our experience of God in the present tense and the here and now. That is, the imminence of God, that he is here, right here with us. Which is true, and a real strength of some of the more contemporary worship music is it connects us to the presence of God here and now. And that is extremely important in Scripture. I mean, we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of things to come. So God is present right here, right now, and we can connect with him in the present tense. But what's strangely missing, by and large, are songs that reach forward into the future and give us a hope of things to come to point us to that final moment and remind us we're on a journey with a climactic conclusion that life isn't primarily about the here and now, it's about then. A lot of those who have written music for the church in former times recognize the importance of maintaining hope. So you'd often find in the final verses this taking us forward and reminding us of what we're supposed to live for. So you have final strains or verses of great hymns like, oh, that with yonder sacred throng we at his feet may fall. will join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. Did you hear that part? And oh, oh, that with yonder sacred throng we at his feet may fall. It brings us to the place of Joyful worship of Christ face-to-face. Or here's another one you probably know well. When he shall come with trumpet sound, O oh, may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. It takes us future. Or when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Takes us future. Or high king of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O oh, bright heaven sun. Future. Or, O oh, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a, as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. There's a reason why the future was penned into the end of songs, because it's supposed to be central. Now, thankfully, by the way, that is not a, a disparagement of contemporary hymn writing, which I love, or music writing. And thankfully, I've, in what I've listened to, it seems to be changing direction, and the future seems to be more in the songwriting of the last four or five years. All this to say is that you've got to keep the hope alive in the fabric of everything in our worship, from the teaching, preaching ministry to the prayer ministry, even here to the song ministry. And one final one. I just think you, guys, you, you all should know this stuff that you have to be intentional about worship. Like, what are we going to emphasize? Are we just going to pick some things out of a hat? Hey, let's emphasize forgiveness this week. Oh, let's emphasize marriage this week. No. Now, you may focus on those things, but always with reference to cross and the future, embedded into the teaching, the praying, and the singing of the church. And then one final one here is that, our hope must permeate the ministry of the sacraments or ordinances, if that's what you choose to call them. As you look at, at how the early church celebrated the Lord's Supper or Baptism, two primary sacraments or ordinances, they had both a backward orientation but also a forward orientation. So when it comes to the Lord's Supper, it points us back to his death on the cross, reminding us of the blood that was shed. But as as often as we take it, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Then it points us back to the original time where he held up the cup and then offered his life, but also forward to the wedding supper of the Lamb where we stand there with him face to face. So why not bring both into view constantly? This is the basis of our salvation the cross, but this is where we're going. Or baptism. Uh, Romans chapter 6 tells us that baptism is a symbol of, of being raised up with Christ, which takes us back to his resurrection. And in his resurrection, we are converted or regenerated. So it points us back, but it also points us forward to our resurrection. So seeing someone go down in the water and come up reminds us not only of the past, but the future when the graves are open and we spring to life and we meet the Lord. So bringing out both dimensions in these sacraments or ordinances. What I'm trying to show you is the future is embedded into everything in terms of how the early church worshipped. Keep looking forward, keep looking forward, keep looking forward. Even in the early church, this isn't so much in the Bible, this is extra biblical literature. But even when the early church sought to sum up the Bible in the earliest creeds that we have, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, one from the first, second, early third century, and the other from the fourth century. The reason, by the way, that they formed these creeds was because people didn't have Bibles like you and I. So it needed a way in which people could memorize the essential truths of the Christian faith and be able to discern the difference between heretical faith versus true faith. So they memorized these little statements, and not only did they memorize them, but they would say them in the congregation um, in unison to remind themselves of the central core truths of the Christian faith. And you know what's in each one of those creeds? The future. Each time they would be reminded of what's to come. So you have at the end of the Apostles' Creed, you have, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, amen. Amen. This has been repeated by the church, our brothers and sisters, for nearly 18 centuries. And it's interesting that they wanted to, when they distilled down the entirety of the Christian faith into a memorizable pairing of sentences, that they chose to include the future. That's how important it was for them. Or the end of the Nicene Creed, which is even more elaborate, he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, amen, and it was repeated and has been repeated for nearly 16 centuries. That's how vital and essential the future was to the church through its time. We live in a day which is focused on the now in the present tense and the present pleasure. But the church has to lift its eyes and impart by recovering the future in our preaching, in our praying, in our singing, in our sacraments, and even in the recitation of these ancient creeds. To remind us that our future is final, wonderful, and that's where we're headed and that's what we're living for. And if you don't live for that, you're going to live for today and you're going to be unfaithful. That's how important it is. The simple point of this, the future, the hope, it needs to permeate everything we do in this body of believers. Where two or three are gathered, let the future be reflected upon and let it be encouraged. In our studies, in our private study, personal study, or group study, let it be something that lives and breathes in us because then you'll find a reason to stick with your marriage because it's not about right now, it's about then. You'll find a reason to forgive people because it's not about right now, it's about then when things will be resolved. So where that is in your heart and in your lives, you will find the strength in the present tense to live, but only as you look toward the future. That's how important it is. And the one who captures, I think, the essence of this final climactic face-to-face encounter I want to read this to you because it gripped my heart. And I'll close with this. This is a, taken from A Meditation Upon God by Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers, arguably, from the 19th century. And he writes about the future. I want you to listen to this. He says, I know there are some divines and learned philosophers who have been telling us that when we go to heaven, we shall occupy our time in flying from star to star and from one planet to another that we shall go see Jupiter and Mercury and Venus and all the hosts of celestial bodies, and we shall behold all the wonders of creation. We shall explore the depths of science as they tell us, and there are no limits to the mysteries we shall understand. My reply to people who imagine this of heaven is that I have no objection should it be so, if it will afford them any pleasure. But, and here's his heart, while you are viewing stars, I will sit down and look at Jesus, and there... Little else we shall want want of heaven besides Jesus Christ. He will be our bread, our food, our beauty, and our glorious dress. The atmosphere of heaven will be Christ. Everything in heaven will be Christ like, yea, Christ is the heaven of his people. To be in Christ and to be with Christ is the essence of heaven. My friends, the most exciting, most thrilling, awe-inspiring, spectacular, euphoric joy eyes have ever seen still wait for us at the end of history where Christ stands waiting for his bride. Right now, we see through but a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. So may the Lord, God of heaven, inspire in this body of believers a passion and a commitment to the truth, and the spirit of come, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray for that in our church. I pray that for my own life. Will you grant us, um, by your Holy Spirit, a renewed hope and allow us to live in that hope, the security of that hope, the passion of that hope, and the joy of that hope. And may you, Lord, seek to permeate this body with the truth of this great future that you have in store for us because you came on Christmas, lived, died, and rose again. In Christ's name we pray.